0: Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Morgan Levine, currently Assistant Professor of Pathology and Epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine. Her group's research is focused on quantifying the aging process, assessing age in terms of biology rather than chronology, so that we can better understand how aging drives chronic disease and identify mechanisms of aging that can be targeted to extend healthy lifespan, a vision that we share at BioAge. I emphasize the word currently Because Dr. Levine is about to embark in a very exciting new direction as one of the founding principal investigators of Altos Labs, which, just in case you've been under a rock for the last couple of months, is a new biotech company focused on rejuvenation programming to restore cellular health and resilience. Altos launched in January, announcing three centers in the U.S. and U.K., a huge influx of scientific talent, and the modest sum of $3 billion in initial funding. We'll be talking a lot about that later in the show. For now, though, I just want to start by saying, Dr. Morgan Levine, thank you so much for joining us on Translating Aging.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. I'm excited to be here.
0: First off, I want to dive into a concept that's going to be important throughout the early part of our conversation, the difference between chronological aging and biological aging. Can you help orient our listeners about this important distinction? So
1: I think a lot of people know what chronological age is. So this is essentially the amount of time you spend alive, whether you measure that in days, months, or years. But I think what a lot of people outside of the field are less familiar with is this idea of biological age. And this really came about because people always knew that age measured in chronological time was the biggest risk factor for most diseases. But what we actually know is that it's not necessarily this amount of chronological time, but it's just because that correlates with the thing we call biological age. And biological age is a little hard to define. It's not a specific thing per se, but the way I like to think of it, it's just kind of the divergence of the stem, So whether it's a whole person or an organ away from some optimal state. And there are a lot of explanations why this occurs. But one thing we and others have been very interested in is whether we can actually try and measure this degree, or at least estimate the degree of divergence. And we think that it's these changes that are actually underlying the associations between what we've always thought as chronological age and disease risk or mortality risk.
0: Your research group has devoted a great deal of energy to developing epigenetic clocks as a way of quantifying biological age. How do these work? And maybe you could begin by saying a few quick words about what the epigenome is. And then tell us about how you could build an aging clock based on measuring it.
1: So there's a lot of ways that you can quantify biological age, and people argue about what types of data you should use. Our lab, as you said, is very interested in using epigenetic measures to do this. And the reason we're interested in that is because I like to think of the epigenome as almost the operating system of a cell. So this is dictating the state of a cell, how a cell will function, because you can imagine almost all the cells in your body have essentially the same genome, but what differentiates them and gives you kind of the diversity of cell type that you need to make an organism is the epigenome.
0: It's like every cell has the same DNA, but each cell is using that DNA in a different way. And when we talk about the epigenome, we're talking about the differences between cells that cause them to use their genomes in different ways. Is that about right?
1: Exactly. Everyone has a different analogy for epigenetics. My analogy is that it's the recipe. So a cell might have all the ingredients, which is in the DNA, but the recipe that it will use to make whatever features it has is going to be dictated by the epigenome. So the other interesting thing, besides making different cell types, is we actually see that the epigenome is remodeled over an organism's lifespan. So we see very distinct changes that we can measure and combine mathematically to give us kind of an overall picture of how much that epigenome has shifted over time. And so the thing we're measuring is something called DNA methylation typically. And what this is, is that you have your nucleotides, so A, C, G, and T. And at specific sites in the genome, you have things called CPG sites or CPG dinucleotides. And that's where you just have a C that sits, next to a G, so upstream five from a G. And you can get a chemical modification to these where you get an addition of a methyl group, and we call this DNA methylation. And this we think controls kind of the accessibility of the DNA in that region because the addition of methylation will cause the the DNA to fold in on itself and become compact, making it inaccessible. What we do is we can measure the amount of this methylation across cells in the sample at hundreds of thousands of sites. And we know that there are some CPGs that gain methylation with age, others that lose methylation with age. And we can combine all this information to predict out kind of the age that your methylome would suggest you look
0: like. So the underlying measurement is you extract DNA from some tissue of interest. You measure DNA methylation at many positions. And at that point, to predict chronological age from that, You sort of have to do a big hairy bioinformatics project, a big statistics project to get a single number chronological age out of all of these methylation data that you've collected from the cell.
1: We're trying to get what we think is a proxy for biological age. And a lot of people do this by training a predictor initially of chronological age, but you can use other measures that you're trying to kind of train predictors as well. So actually in 2018, we developed what the field calls the first second generation clock. So the first time that we weren't using methylation to predict chronological age. And in this case, we use methylation to predict some other measure that we called phenotypic age, which was basically a combination of clinical traditional lab tests or things like cholesterol and glucose and all these other things we combined that we had shown is a good predictor of mortality. So it was almost like the methylation predicts these physiological changes, which then predict mortality risk. And since then, people have developed other of these second-generation clocks predicting directly on mortality or predicting protein levels or longitudinal changes in different lab tests or a variety of other things
0: as well. Okay. That actually leads me to the next question I was going to ask you, which is, do these clocks work just for populations of individuals or do they work for individuals? Like, can you use a clock longitudinally in the same person by sampling again and again, and then making the same measurements and the same extrapolation again and again. This is
1: actually something that was really important to us in that not only do you have to have good, what we consider validity, so capturing whatever this construct is we think we're capturing, which is in this case biological age, but we also want to make sure these are really reliable at the n equals one level, so in an individual. So we actually found that traditional epigenetic clocks are really unreliable. So even if I take the same blood sample from a person and just run it twice. So it's not even a different day. It's the same exact sample. A lot of the traditional epigenetic clocks gave you wildly different estimates on the two replicates. So, Oh my, we don't like that. No, up to <laughs> like eight years difference, which if you imagine this being used for clinical trials or even individuals who want to know their, knowing that you have a plus or minus five to eight years, it kind of becomes useless at that point. So when I first saw this, I actually thought, oh, the epigenetic clock field is dead. Like Besides population research, are going to have no utility in aging research. It ended up being like two years trying to sort out a way to deal with this. And we actually came up with a statistical solution where we, instead of feeding in the individual CPGs into this mathematical algorithm, we combine them. We feed in actually what we would consider like a latent measure that includes all the CPGs in them. And we feed in a lot of these. And that goes in. So each individual CPG does not have that big an impact on your overall score. So if you get, you know, randomly one's noisy or another's noisy, it actually doesn't have a major impact on the biologic or epigenetic age estimates that we're getting.
0: I see. So it sounds like the newest generation of plots, the most successful ones, allow us to measure the rate of aging in real time in a single organism.
1: It absolutely can if we, again, are making the assumption that we're truly capturing this biological age phenomenon, which I know is still something hotly discussed in the field. And I agree with the critics that say, have we really proven that we're capturing biological age? But at least I would say for now, yes, we can crack this single indicator of aging in real time over time and feel like at least we've reliably
0: done that. I see. And then the open question is whether or not that corresponds to some platonic ideal of true biological age that's predictive of mortality and other kind of features.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. This is an important enough concept that I kind of want to walk the listeners through some of the logic. So there are clocks for people, but there are also clocks for ribbons. So from the field of gyroscience, we know about interventions, pharmaceutical or lifestyle interventions that can extend lifespan and healthspan in rodents. So a good example would be in some strains of mice, calorie restriction, in many strains of mice, drugs like rapamycin. So when you perform these interventions in animal models, whatever the clock is measuring, whatever you want to call it, do you see it slow down?
1: We definitely do in the case of caloric restriction. There have been numerous studies, including one that we did in rats and then extrapolated to mice, work done by Vadim Gladyshev and others that showed that there is a very marked decrease in at least epigenetic age measured in blood for animals that have undergone caloric restriction. I think there have been less tests with things like rapamycin, but we've done them in cells, so not in animals. And we can see that rapamycin does decrease the epigenetic clock in cells. And I think this is also shown by Ken Raj and Steve Horvath in one of their in vitro analyses as well. So yes, it seems like the things that we assume should affect aging in potentially an animal model do show effects when using the epigenetic clock.
0: Great. And this is logically important, right? Like if it's true that the clocks are measuring biological aging, you'd absolutely want to see something that Increased longevity, increased health span, slowed sort of gross aging phenotypes, you would want that to be to correspond with the slowing of the clock.
1: Yes, this comes back to this idea of construct validity. So, the hardest thing about measuring or estimating something like biological age is that what's called a latent variable. So, in statistics, it just means that it's hidden so that we cannot actually directly measure this and we have to use mathematical models to try and infer or estimate something about it. And in statistics, you really assess this based on something called construct validity, which is, does it show evidence that it reflects associations you would expect that construct would? So if we're measuring biological age, exactly like you said, it should first correlate with chronological age to some degree, but not perfectly. Divergence from chronological age should be biologically meaningful in that it's predictive of Disease risk or mortality risk among people the same chronological age. And the interventions that we know or at least are assumed to slow the rate of aging should also appear in these when we apply these different measures.
0: Great. Thank you very much for breaking that down for us. I want to go back to this slow conversation we're having about the logic underlying this controversy that you alluded to earlier. So from what you just told us, we know that slowing aging, for lack of a better term, slows the clock down. So now I want to entertain the converse. Suppose that we had some intervention whose effect on longevity and health span we didn't know, new compound or something we just discovered, and we give it to an animal and it slowed the clock in a longitudinal series of measurements. Could we then conclude that this intervention was slowing aging?
1: I know some people do. I would not conclude that. I would just take that as evidence that this compound should probably be followed up in a more extensive whether it's a lifespan study or some other outcomes that you would expect. We have not actually proven that slowing or at least decreasing epigenetic age is directly a sign that you've decreased biological age. And I can actually think of a number of instances where that would not be the case. So one thing that we've been really interested in is, again, the way these measures are constructed is that they're composites that have input from lots of different types of methylation changes. And even though the whole score is predictive of disease or mortality, we don't know if it's paired across every single variable that goes into this. So if you could imagine, let's say there's five things feeding into it, and maybe three of them are actually what's responsible for the signal in terms of predicting mortality or disease but there's two that aren't. And there's something that just ends up in the model because the models aren't perfect. If you have an intervention acting on those two things, not the ones that actually matter, I can see how you could get a decrease in the clock score that would have zero bearing on increased lifespan or increased health span or any of these things we're actually trying to target at the end of the day.
0: You described that very carefully and it's clear how that could happen. Has anything like that ever been observed?
1: So not in terms of interventions, we have a current preprint out that, so again, this has not been peer reviewed, where we've actually taken the human epigenetic clocks and broken them out into, actually, I take it back, we kind of do show this. So we've broken them out into what we would call different modules. So these are types of CPG changes that are being captured in the clocks that are distinct from each other. And we looked at one particular intervention. In this case, it was cellular reprogramming, which I imagine we might get to later. (laughs) But basically, this is something that we know decreases the overall epigenetic clock score. And what we found is that it's really acting on just a few of these modules. So we find like three modules are reset and the rest either stay the same or some increase. And then we've gone and looked at which of the modules matter for predicting mortality, in that case, luckily, the one that was the most reset also was the best predictor, but there could be definitely cases where that would not occur, and then you could draw conclusions on whether you expect that reset to actually translate into something meaningful in terms of lifespan or span.
0: I see. And really, the gold standard here is, as you said, if you made the observation that you had an intervention that slowed one or more modules of an epigenetic clock, you would then have to follow up with experiments. You think of it as a lead generator. Exactly. But you'd have to do experiments to then measure the biology of interest and at that point you could say, "Hey, my clock helped me find something that was a novel intervention that extends health span." But just the fact of the clock slowing alone is not enough to make that conclusion. Yes. At least and you were very generous, you said, you know, it's a controversy, you fall on one side of it, I happen to share your view. I just wanted to kind of, well, you know, it's just you and me here in the room with our listeners. So, you know, we get to draw the conclusions we want to draw. And uh, I think those seem very logically sound for the moment. All right. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about practical stuff. What are the near-term applications of clocks in terms of human health, especially as it regards aging and longevity? How are these used? There's a lot of people
1: who have speculated on how these should be applied. You know, people are using them in terms of the consumer market to allow individuals to track their epigenetic age, which again, I am fine with. I've actually collaborated with some of these people. I think it just needs to be put out there with the kind of asterisks that we cannot say that we are perfectly measuring age. And if you did some lifestyle change and saw a decrease, we can't tell you that that is truly going to be reflected in your future health. I think that's the hope. I don't see tons of danger in this, in that you're giving people more insights into their biology that they wouldn't already have. And again, as long as they recognize and acknowledge that this is not a perfect measure, it's probably okay. And I find that these to be less dangerous than people taking, you know, any pharmaceutical or even supplements that have not been proven out. So I think information, I don't think in this case is as dangerous.
0: By definition, if all you're doing is taking a sample out of a human body and running some analysis of it, it can't hurt the person. Whereas if a person is putting something into their body that wasn't there before, like an untested supplement or a pharmaceutical that was maybe approved for some other purpose, it's possible they could do harm to themselves. So what I hear you saying is, you know, maybe there are some qualifications on what we can do with this information, but at the end of the day, getting more information can't be a bad thing. And it certainly can't be dangerous in the way that putting physical materials in the human body is potentially dangerous.
1: People could maybe make the argument that, oh, if someone stopped some important medication they were on because of their results, that maybe that's dangerous. Or if they really change their behavior in a deleterious way. I don't see that as being that common. And I would always recommend to someone to consult with their physician before really changing any behavior or medication. But to me too, I think we do know that generally, these things do reflect health to a very good degree relative to any other things that people are measuring. So I think, too, they can actually be used to benefit health. You know, a lot of times we go about our lives thinking we're in really good health until something happens, right? You have a heart attack or you're diagnosed with prediabetes or whatever it is. And if these things can kind of give people a little bit of insight or wake up much earlier, I actually think they'll be beneficial for prevention. And for the most part, I think they'll just help motivate people to maintain healthier lifestyles. Because if you're actually tracking the effects of those, of course, with some error in that, then I think people will be more likely to stick to it than just like, oh, I'm assuming I'm doing well and or, you know, smoking can't be that bad for me because (laughs) whatever it is, cognitive dissonance.
0: Right. So in the meantime, it's just the obligation of anybody who's providing tests that people can take to do accurate science communication with them, to let them know what the strengths and limitations are of the technology and make sure that people who are using it are well-informed. At that point, I think there's very little risk to the consumer because they know exactly what they're safe in concluding about the measurements that are being taken. And As you say, they have more information about their lives that could motivate them to live in a healthier way and to enjoy the fact that they're taking charge of their health and that they're tracking their progress. I don't think that sounds like it could possibly be a bad thing.
1: I hope so. I mean, I think, again, it also comes back to the measures themselves, right? So as I mentioned before, some of the measures can be highly unreliable in terms of noise. So I would say as long as the consumers are being given the best measures that we have available... That's important because, again, biological age is not observable. They have The consumer has no way to actually validate to themselves that what they're being given is legitimate in any way. So I think it's really important to kind of show that measure that, you know, a company or whoever is providing is actually the best and can be provided at the moment.
0: I completely agree.
1: The other application where this could hypothetically be used in the future is again, it's kind of related, but in healthcare. So traditionally, you'll go in maybe once a year, get a panel of whether it's CBC or a metabolic panel or any of these lab tests. And what we've actually found is that actually, the, you know, whether it's epigenetic clocks, some of them, or other ways to estimate biological age are actually more predictive of future disease risk than measuring all these things individually. So I can actually see where assuming physicians can actually understand these and communicate what these are to their patients, that these actually could be used as more of like a screening thing. And then, you know, if it does seem much higher than you'd expect, maybe you go in and do more specific tests to figure out what it is that might be causing this.
0: Oh, that's really cool. So when I go to the physician, in addition, or maybe instead of some of these standard blood tests I've been doing my whole life, they draw a blood sample and they do epigenetic clock analysis of the white cells in my blood. And from there, I say, oh, you know, you're 50 years old. You look like you're about 49. No cause for concern. Whereas... If I am about 50 years old, I look 65, according to my epigenetic clock test, maybe it's time to look a little deeper and see what's going on with Chris's health. Exactly. Okay. And I guess another thing that would be relevant, you said physician understanding and buy-in, I guess I would say also would be an important consideration, but also cost and then like whether reimbursers and payers would be interested in getting involved. About how much money does it take to do one of these sets of measurements on an individual just one time?
1: So right now, cost is the biggest issue. So for us, we're sending in multiple samples simultaneously so you can get kind of like a bulk discount. But we usually spend about $225 from including DNA extraction all the way to getting your raw data. That It's actually, if you look at all the clinical lab tests that would be done, so if you were to go to a quest and get kind of the entire panel, it's actually fairly on par with that. But I think there is potential for the cost to come down in the future. And I'm really excited about some of the stuff I've seen in people working on doing that. The thing is just, can we decrease the cost without losing the reliability and validity that I keep coming back to? And I think there are going to be ways to do that in the future. And not to sound like Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, but (laughs) (laughs) the cool thing is you just need a single test. So I don't need three vials of blood for three different tests. You can hypothetically do it from saliva. And so again, we make all of our algorithms public, so I'm not hiding (laughs) that these are actually working. But yeah, I think there is potential in the future to actually get lots of information from a very simple test.
0: I agree. And honestly, $225 compared to if you look at the breakdown of costs from like a routine physical checkup, the tests are actually pretty expensive. That's not that much money. DNA sequencing related technology becomes cheaper with time, basically exponentially. So I think that it's very likely that the cost of this could go down pretty rapidly in the future. That's exciting news for the future of healthcare, if it could be applied in the way that you're describing. I love the clocks conversation. I think we could fill a whole show with it. But Dr. Levine, you have had the impertinence to have something interesting enough going on in your life, that there's a whole other show's worth of stuff to talk about. So I want to start moving in that direction. The easy transition question is, are you going to continue your work on clocks at Altos Labs?
1: I will to some degree. I think my lab has become much more interested in understanding the clocks rather than just simply developing new clocks. Of course, we're always going to keep on trying to improve them. But we actually want to do that from a mechanistic kind of bottom-up approach where we're really trying to understand what's driving the changes that are captured by the clock and how do those link to the outcomes that we've shown they're associated with. Because right now, it's very black box. We know we can measure them and predict things. But we have no idea why certain people be higher or lower in their epigenetic age or what could potentially be used to intervene and change these things and or why these even matter for health. So that's mostly, I think, what we're going to be spending a lot of
0: time on. I see. So possibly a strained analogy, you spent some time building these clocks and now you're going to take them apart and figure out how they work.
1: Exactly. I like to, I always show this picture when I'm giving talks on like clocks with all the spokes and everything out of it. Can we figure out what all the pieces are and how they fit together to make the whole clock
0: score? That's really cool. Do you have any idea what's going on? Like when you said you were looking for the mechanisms that drive these things, are there some interesting going theories or are you really just starting from ground zero?
1: So again, this comes back to this idea that we don't think that there is a single type of epigenetic age change. And really there are different kind of, what we call modules, some people might call domains of epigenetic aging that are being captured by the clocks. So initially what we've done is just to kind of group all the CPG variables that are in the clocks into these modules. And in doing that, we figured out which ones seem to be the most important in terms of responsive to different perturbations you can do in cell culture. And we're starting to link it to more maybe functionally relevant or other types of epigenetic changes to understand what these are actually capturing in terms of regulating transcription or whatever, maybe.
0: Gotcha. So that's one of the first directions which you're going to move after you move yourself to Altos.
1: Yep. Continuing to do that, and figure out what's in there.
0: Fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about Altos itself. At the risk of a really criminal understatement, it's not your typical startup. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's organized?
1: Yes. To me, the exciting thing and the reason I wanted to join Altos, I mean, I was perfectly happy in my academic lab at Yale. I was not looking to move. So it really was just the most exciting kind of endeavor that actually made me want to move. And this is a lot thanks to Rick Klausner, who is really the person who developed Altus and had one of the original ideas with Yuri Milner. And the way I think of it, it's really taking the best of academia and the best of industry and trying to meld that together. So most of the people if you look at the altos website you'll notice are coming from academia so these are people who really value the academic freedom that come from being in an academic institution so the ability to do basic science and just ask interesting questions and that is really something that i think is going to be attempted to continue at altos but we also know that there are drawbacks in academia so academia moves much slower you write a grant and if you're lucky and you actually get that grant, it takes a whole year before you can even start working on that. And by that time, your lab or the field has moved. So just the ability to quickly adapt and ask the really exciting questions. And then also just work in this, what we're hoping is going to be just a hyper-collaborative environment where you bring a lot of people together, you take away the kind of individualized incentives that are in academia, and you really just say, we're a team, we're all working on the same projects and problems, and how do we best come together like a system, essentially, and optimize
0: what we can discover. Extending this idea of collaboration to the centers. Sorry, quick background. There are three centers, one in Cambridge, UK, one in the Bay Area, and one in San Diego. And you're going to be at the San Diego Center. My question is, in relation to the idea of a collaborative setting, do the centers have themes or missions? That is to say, are the principal investigators at each center working on one big project or related project? And along those lines, I know that your close collaborator, Steve Horvath, is also joining the San Diego Center.
1: The centers weren't initially set up specifically with a given theme for each one. I think based on kind of how people were brought into them, they might naturally kind of have more of a theme or there might be more like-minded people within the centers. But there's actually still a lot of overlap across the different centers. So I know San Diego has particularly a lot of overlap with the Cambridge one. So I mean, if you just look at the people in the different ones. So yes, Steve and I are at San Diego in People like Wolf Reich and Ken Raj, who also worked on epigenetics and aging, are at Cambridge. So there's definitely kind of overlap there. And then, of course, Manuel Serrano's at Cambridge, and Juan Carlos Belmonte is at San Diego. And there's a decent amount of overlap. You know, I'm not even naming all the people that there's overlap with, but
0: well, it's a long list of some very talented people. So it's yeah. okay if you don't want to like run through the entire list. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't think we have time for that anyway.
0: <laughs> You're the first person from Altos that I've talked to on the show, and I'm hoping that you're not the last. It's one of the most exciting things in the field that's happened in a while. And so I'm very interested in knowing, and I think our listeners are really excited to know more about it. So just to follow up on the organizational question, so that right now there's four principal investigators at the San Diego Center?
1: That's. Sounds right. Well, yeah. I guess if you're not counting one Carlos, right? Because
0: he's well, he's the director.
1: Yeah, he's the director. But I think of him as having
0: their lab. I see. So everyone's going to have their own labs there, kind of like you already do at Yale. You're just going to have a similar structure where you're the PI. There's going to be some postdocs. Are there going to be PhD students? My PhD students who
1: are currently in my lab are coming, but I don't know what the future of PhD students is going to look
0: like there. So it's going to be PI, postdocs, and laboratory technicians, research associates. In the future? Yes. Okay, great. So then what drives the direction of research? Is the PI making the same autonomous decisions about what they want to pursue that they would in an academic setting? Or is there some kind of top-down instruction about what kinds of things Altos Lab PIs ought to be working on?
1: I mean, again, we're just getting started. So the goal is to have it very much open. So the PIs, like they would in academia, have intellectual freedom to pursue questions that they find interesting. And of course, the people who are hired were hired because they're working on problems relevant to what the mission of Altos is. So, you know, if someone wanted to completely change topics and say something not at all associated with the mission, then there might be some discussions. But the mission is fairly broad. And I think as long as your question can fit under that, there are no restrictions and we're not being told what projects we should or should not
0: be working on. I see. And in that sense it's kind of reminiscent of Bell Labs, the old Bell Labs organization. Does that resonate for you?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that was one of the models that was used in designing
0: Altus. So Altos still intends to make money someday, right?
1: I mean, yeah, it would be nice. Otherwise, I don't know if we'll stay afloat forever.
0: (laughs) Well, you're off to a good start in terms of funding. I guess what I'm wondering about is in your discussions, and again, I know that you're just getting started, in your discussions about how the entity is going to be organized, are there advantages in terms of rapid paths to commercialization that have been established for discoveries that are made at Altos?
1: Obviously, there will probably be commercialization of discoveries, but I I think the idea is that the biggest discoveries will come out of basic science questions. So not chasing down a translational or, you know, whether it's therapeutic or whatever it is question, but just understanding the biology and understanding the science. And from there, things will naturally come out. And, you know, being able to do projects that are high risk and maybe bigger leaps than you might be able to do in terms of kind of incremental science in academia, I think there's a hope that just from that things will come out. But there's not a push to have specific things that are going to be translational and commercial
0: from the get-go. What's emerging in my mind here is you talked about freedom and autonomy before. And from the description you just gave in that answer it occurs to me that there's two kinds of freedom that LTSPIs are going to have. On the one hand, you're free from the need to write grants and teach and do all kinds of things that people think of as the obligations of an academic life. But at the same time, it sounds like you're also free from having an immediate, monetizable, relatively short-term translational goal, which is something people think of as being one of the obligations of working in industry. So you're in a very interesting hybrid arrangement that seems to have a lot of the benefits of both academia and industry, but lacks, as far as I can tell, almost all the detractors.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that was the goal in setting it up is looking at these two spaces and saying, what are the best things that we can take from them? And what are the major hurdles that we want to not recreate in something? And I think I'm very optimistic that something like Altos will be super successful, not just monetarily, but just in terms of the discoveries that come out. I do think that this could really be a paradigm shift for how industry jobs, or even inform academia, how these different jobs should actually look in the future. So that's my hope. We'll see what happens.
0: Well, from your mouth to God's ears, I want to return for the moment to science. The mission of Altos is... Rejuvenation programming to restore cellular health and resilience with the goal of reversing disease and thereby transforming medicine. How will Morgan Levine's labs work there? Advance that goal.
1: So, again, I think a lot of what we're interested in is first off, can we quantify health or even understand what health, whether we're talking in a cell, in a system, in an organism, is? And then, what are the rules that either move a system away from that or potentially take a system back towards that state. So my lab is really a combination of both experimental wet lab people and computational dry lab people. And I really like to have strong groups on both sides that are interacting so that we can number one, you know, measure these things using the most advanced statistical and machine learning approaches, but also actually then go in and understand the biology of what is driving those models that we've derived.
0: And as you say, finding ways to potentially return cells to a healthier state from a state closer to disease. ALTOS is very focused on the idea of cellular reprogramming as a path toward achieving that goal. Can you just quickly describe what cellular reprogramming is for our listeners who might not be familiar?
1: Yes, although I will say that ALTOS... Specifically, it's not using reprogramming in its mission statement. It's using, it switched this to programming with the idea that we aren't solely, quote, married to the initial kind of cellular reprogramming technology. Not that that is not an avenue that would be pursued, which I'm sure people can just guess based on looking at who is involved in Altos, but, you know, we're not solely constrained to that type of intervention. And there might be a multitude of different ways that one could kind of convert a diseased or dysregulated system back into a healthy system. So to go back to your question, the cellular reprogramming, or sometimes people call it epigenetic reprogramming, is basically discovered by Shinya Yamanaka, and he won the Nobel Prize for this. Where you can express these transcription factors that people call Yamanaka factors. There's four of them, and that can convert a somatic cell. So you can take a skin fibroblast, you can take basically a various types of cells and convert it all the way back to look like an embryonic stem cell. Whether it's perfectly converted back to be indistinguishable from an embryonic stem cell, I think is not necessarily the case. But you know, one question is is it converted enough? And this is really exciting in stem cell biology, but aging researchers began to pay more attention to this because what seems to be happening is actually almost as a first part of this process is a lot of the age changes that we've used to try and quantify biological aging seem to be reversed very early on in this process, even before the cells lose their identity. So you would still have a skin fibroblast, but now it just looks more like a young skin fibroblast. And we don't know what this means in terms of the functioning or resilience of that cell, but it's something that we will definitely be exploring with others and others in academia are exploring as well.
0: I see. And just to clarify, when you say that this epigenetic change happens in these cells very early in the process of it being exposed to the reprogramming factors... They can basically enjoy this, for lack of a better word, rejuvenation, without actually losing their differentiated state. A skin cell stays a skin cell. It just looks like a younger skin cell.
1: You know, if I'm trying to reprogram a mouse's liver, let's say, you don't want to turn all the hepatocytes into stem cells that lose their initial state. You want to maintain the initial cellular identity
0: to some degree. Right. That definitely would not reverse disease. It would cause probably a few more problems than it was worth. You want to keep the hepatocytes as hepatocytes. Okay. So you've defined a couple of axes in this conversation that we're having just now. The idea that programming, if I'm using the word correctly, can potentially move a cell from a disease state to a healthy state. It could move a cell from what we think of as an old state into a young state. Are those two different axes or are they parallel? The
1: way I would think about them is that they are correlated. So back in statistics, they're not orthogonal, which means they're completely uncorrelated. But you can imagine how something can move into a disease state, not via necessarily the aging process in terms of what we think of in terms of the time scale of aging. I mean, genetic diseases can cause cells or organisms to have a less healthier, less optimal state that has nothing to do with aging. And actually, some of the interesting things in the early aging reprogramming work was that these were done in these lackey mice, which are a progerian model that somehow enabled these mice to overcome this deleterious genotype that they had. So yeah, you can, I think, whether health slash disease is not necessarily perfectly correlated with young slash old.
0: All right. That actually helps me understand and to some extent predict the answer to the next question I'm going to ask you. I'm going to read you a quote. I'm not going to say the name of the person who said this. And I just want to hear what you have to say about this idea. In reference to Altos Labs, we're not an aging company. We're certainly not a longevity company we're a disease reversal company by programming cells in a variety of ways to have more optimal resilience. What do you think about that?
1: I mean, I completely agree with it. I think saying we just work on aging or just work on longevity is really constraining us to some degree, even though aging has huge effects on most of the diseases that you know people actually work on. It's not the only cause of disease. And I think The other thing, you know, even though we say, oh, we work on aging, we work in the field of aging, aging is not, you know, again, it's this latent thing. It's not a real, you know, what is that actually? Is it like your last question? Is it different from kind of the spectrum of health to disease? And I like to think of it as it's one thing that can move someone or a cell across that spectrum, but it's certainly not the only thing. I mean, we can even look at this in terms of COVID over the last Year, you can see how an infection can, in a very short amount of time, so not over an aging kind of time frame, move someone from a more healthy state to a less healthy state. I like to think of this again, I love analogies, so I always use them as the sandcastle on the beach. You can have it slowly kind of erode. You could also have a huge wave or a toddler or someone just come and topple it over. And so I think that's the analogy I use for, you know, when it's perfectly formed, it's the healthy state, kind of everything's where it should be to optimally function. But there's a number of things that can move it away from that optimal ideal configuration.
0: I think that's lovely. We also like analogies here at Translating Aging. We're coming to the end of our time. And one of the things I like to do at the end of interviews is just kind of open the floor and invite you to do some blue sky thinking. I can prime you or prompt you with a Question, but I really just want you to be free for a moment. In five years or 10 years, imagine that you say, I have had a great success at Altos Lab. This effort has been enormously valuable. What does that look like? What does success look like?
1: The thing that I'm most excited to quote solve is number one, can we even quantitatively define these dates that you see? in aging, in disease, in even development. So can we understand how the state of a cell or an organism dictates anything about the functioning of that cell or organism? So when I say quantify the state, that's using all of kind of the massive amounts of molecular data that we can measure. So can we measure everything about it and say, how does that manifest or emerge in terms of the functioning of that entity? And then, you know, if you can model that, you can then go back and say, well, can we make predictions about it? So I know the state of the cell or entity. Can I predict what would happen if I did this perturbation? And it could be a stressor, so something that moves it in the less ideal kind of Dimension, or it could be something that would move it to a more optimal state. And then I think eventually from there, once you understand kind of the rules and you can make good predictions, you can then discover ways to actually do this and move real cells or tissues back to these more optimal states. So this is something that already happens in development where you might have cells that have been around for a really long time and potentially acquired some kind of deleterious changes, but when you have the new zygote or eventually fetus or a whole human, these things have somehow been erased and you now have a perfectly functioning individual for the most part. So just figuring out how nature actually does that, I think it's going to be a really exciting yet challenging thing to work
0: on. A worthy goal. And I speak on behalf of our listeners and everyone here at BioAge, wishing you the best of luck.
1: Thank you. We'll need it, but it'll
0: be fun. Dr. Morgan Levine, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for
1: having me, Chris.
0: Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at podcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.